Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I am speaking today with Catherine Allen, the CEO of Flow Recruit, Ross Guberman, the CEO of LawCatch, the developer of BriefCatch, and Jim Wagner, the CEO of the Contract Network. Catherine, Ross, Jim, great to speak with you. Good to speak Likewise. with you, too. Catherine, tell me about your background and the genesis of Flow Recruit. Sure, Ari. Well, Flow Recruit really got started as my co-founder and I were studying at the University of Texas at Austin. And we were looking for our first jobs, looking around career fairs and attending networking events. And we were noticing that recruiters were taking paper resumes. And we wondered that when we applied online, where that actually went and it inspired my co-founder and I to build a software to help companies build candidate pipeline at recruiting events and track that through the final completion of the hire. Our company has changed a ton. We focused entirely on the legal industry. We work now with 200 legal clients and we actually are the software that powers all of the now virtual on-campus interviews for a hundred different law schools, as well as many of the interviews and job applications for 40% of the AMLAW 100. So big change from when we first were inspired as students at the University of Texas. Ross, tell us about your background and the genesis of Brief Catch. Legal writing has been my thing since really just a couple of years after I finished law school. I did workshops all around the world for mostly for firms, but also for courts and agencies and some in-house groups. And then around 2017, I decided to take the plunge into legal tech. Just as it was sort of heating up, I created a prototype product called Contract Catch, put it aside. And then we launched Brief Catch in 2018. And it's an editing product, a little bit a little bit like Grammarly for lawyers with all sorts of content and explanations and examples as well. And we're now in our third version, Brief Catch 3, which is cloud-based and has all sorts of new bells and whistles. And we have yeah, lots of subscribers of every type from some of the world's biggest firms all the way down to individual users and lots of courts, lots of courts and agencies. Jim, tell us about your background and the genesis of the contract network. Well, I've been a legal tech entrepreneur since the early 2000s. I have both been a solution provider as well as a technology provider. So I was COO of DTI Epic. I founded a company called DiscoverEdy that we grew to a good, good extent. It's now part of Concilio. And then founded a company called Apogee that was focused on using AI and contract analytics. We merged that company with SEAL. I became president of SEAL Software. About a year later, SEAL was a global leader in AI and contract analytics. We sold that company to DocuSign in May of 2020. And so naturally, you know, I it's a space that I love. And so I wanted to keep going. The contract network is a place where all parties can come together and hopefully negotiate their agreements a lot faster than they do under the status quo. You've each been successful in raising money in the current market. Catherine, at what point in your growth phase did you decide to begin fundraising? We decided to fundraise right out of the gate. And 
that was really because we were starting the business out of the University of Texas and but raising money gave us the opportunity to work on the business full time and not take a traditional job. So we were able to raise some money and we were still eating ramen, but you know, maybe a few more boxes of it per day than we could have just kind of humming along without that opportunity to take some cash. And I think on that same note, we made the decision to go through an, a well-known accelerator program called Y Combinator out in the Bay Area. And we did that really to surround ourselves with resources, help us with hiring and help us to continue to grow the business because we were very serious about it from the very beginning, even though we were just coming out of school starting it. Ross, when did you make that decision? Yeah, pretty different from Catherine's story, as I just heard. So I sort of found the whole bootstrapping idea appealing and maybe even romantic. Sometimes sometimes you get praise you know, for bootstrapping and sort of maybe some kind of American some American value. And also the, you know, I'm lucky that the product was profitable early on. So I was able to chug along and then I was so immersed in the product and in, you know, sales and just running the business that years went by, but I finally reached a juncture where I kind of had a choice, a little bit of a Hamlet choice. I could, could have kept coasting. And I think that would have been just fine and would have had some advantages, but I decided to go big and, and explore funding options and really scale this thing and see where it could take us. Yeah. So we decided my co-founder and I, my co-founder is Bill Murphy, most recently the CTO of Blackstone. And we decided that we would seek outside company probably before we decided to form the company officially. So it was just pretty much taken for granted that given the hill that we wanted to climb, and the size of the product that we we need to build, that we would, you know, that we would take an outside capital route in order to get there. Catherine, can you tell us some details about what you've raised and also why you have both institutional and individual investors as an advantage? Sure. To date, we've raised $7 million and we have done that through a number of vehicles, as well as through both individuals and institutional investors. For us, individuals are largely angels. And in the beginning, when folks were betting on us, we had strong relationships with angels who were willing to support us. And that's really where the individuals came from. In this most recent round, we raised $4.2 million. We also brought on an individual investor because we were super excited about her background in legal and specifically legal recruiting of partners. And we thought that she could give us some fantastic insight. Whereas institutional investors bring a ton of experience to the table across so many different companies and can help you know, solve some of the problems that may be unique to us because it is the first time we're seeing them. But maybe a pattern for them that they've seen in the past. So we've been grateful for the mix and are excited to, to keep both engaged as we continue to grow. Ross, what did you raise? And was your reasoning similar in terms of the institutional and individual investors combination? We just raised 3.5 million, which was, which was actually a little bit more than I was expecting to take. And it looks like it might creep up to about 4 million, 4.5 million. We'll see in the next couple of weeks. So I actually focused exclusively on institutional investors. Obviously, you need lead investors first, and then you go from there. And I'm very happy that we have individuals, but they, you know, they, approach, they approached me. 
I didn't want to, I didn't want to ask people, people I knew either, you know, socially, professionally, or both, but I'm, I've got a really, a really great mix, really eclectic mix of investors now. And I'm very grateful. Kim? Yeah, you bet. We raised approximately $8 million in our seed round that excludes the initial founding capital that we put in. And in terms of, you know, and our lead investor was Tusk Ventures out of New York City, Bradley Tusk and Jordan Knopf. And in terms of individual investors, you know, Andrew Seja, who the industry knows very well, Relativity, he is an individual investor, but Andrew is on, you know, to another chapter in his life. In addition to his relativity world, he also has a family office, and and I think he's making a, a series invest of investments in legal tech. So he's a little bit of a hybrid in terms of individual versus a uh, versus a fund. But the vast majority of our of our investments did come from you know come from funds, Mayo Ventures, Toba Capital, Tusk, etc. In terms of individuals, though, it always makes sense. If you have friends and family who are passionate about what you're doing, who believe in it, and who also can help you strategically, then having those friends and family on the journey is can be invaluable. Catherine, when, when exactly did you close your current round and what challenges did you face in raising money in the current environment? Sure. Yeah. So we announced it just a few weeks ago now. I don't know. Time has been flying. I don't remember the exact date. (laughs) But in regards to challenges in fundraising in this current environment, I mean, look, I think everyone says it, but it's true that previously in the, the market where money felt like it was free to many outsiders, it was really all about growth and how fast can you grow at really whatever might be the cost. And I think as we've seen the market calm down, it's become a lot more advantageous to look at efficiency metrics, retention numbers, how how sticky is your, your customer base really. And we were lucky in that that's where Flow Recruit really shines. Our customers love us. We have a super high retention rate. So we've grown with our customers and we've been able to deliver new products to them that they love. And that means that when we look at growth, we've always wanted it to be more sustainable. So for us, I think it ended up being an advantage, but Certainly, we saw that the fundraising process took longer than what we had seen in a prior market with other peer companies because investors were really doing their due diligence and checking to make sure that the fundamentals of the business were in place instead of looking to deploy capital as quickly as possible in a market that was super, super competitive. Ross, when exactly did you close your round and what challenges did you face? So We closed our round just a few weeks ago. And, you know, as I think you've suggested, this is not not considered the greatest of environments for raising funds in legal tech. I'd, I'd say that I mean, everything Catherine said definitely resonates with me, but my, my overall feeling, and of course, it's only been a couple of weeks, so it's a fairly strong feeling, is just the sense that all your numbers have to be, you know, perfect or close to perfect, even when they, that, that seems contradictory. So they, sure, they want profitability but they, they want growth, but they also want to make sure you haven't spent too much. They want, you know, they want almost flawless retention numbers, you know, almost no churn. They want not only growth, you know, overall, but steady growth. And, you know, every, every little deviation from that perfect scenario gets, gets questioned not, not in an unfair or aggressive way, but in a way that, you know, can kind of take you by surprise. If you, if you feel like you've built a pretty, 
pretty good business. So just, I'd say that, that, that feeling that perhaps in a way that's much different from how it was even a year or two ago, you got to have almost every metric up to snuff. And that's just not realistic, I think, for most businesses. Yeah. So we announced our closing last week. And, you know, I think going back to, you know, going back to Catherine's point, it definitely is a different world. Make no mistake about it. Than than 2020, 2021, it's a massively different market. You know, where we are focused, Ari, in the contract world, you know, it definitely took some work. And Bill and I, this is not our first rodeo by any stretch, but it took a little bit of work on our part to really make sure we nailed our story. And we learned a lot along the way in terms of trying to distinguish why what we were building was was unique and, and had significant potential. The second piece is, is that there's a fair bit, fair degree of skepticism as well that you have to confront, which is, is, wait a minute, you're asking everyone to come into one place to get a deal done. It's a big idea. And I think the venture community loves to talk about, they love big ideas. They love entrepreneurs or founders who are subject matter experts who want to fundamentally change the world. And we definitely felt like we were in that category. But at the same time, you know, at the same time, I think there's a degree of of conservatism that's out there in the venture community when it comes to how big a bet they necessarily want to make. And we we felt that from time to time. The other things that happened along the way for us, Ari, um, one is we had the Silicon Valley Bank meltdown in the middle of our raise. And we also had generative AI that absolutely exploded. And even though we are a company that leans very heavily into the AI context, it wasn't necessarily apparent in the product that we were building at the early stages exactly how we were getting that done. And our world completely changed overnight once we were able to get sort of the full vision of the AI directly into the product. We went from, you know, from many challenges to having, you know, a, a lot of great choices. But it took some real work on our part that, you know, that everyone should be aware of. Ross and Catherine just spoke to. It is really, really challenging. Catherine, what advice do you have for legal tech founders interested in raising money today? Hmm. I think two things. One, echoing Jim and Ross, it certainly is challenging. And I felt similarly to Ross that there was, you know, expectation to have every number perfect. But to Ross's point, that's unrealistic and no business has every number perfect. There are strengths and weaknesses to every business. So I guess my advice would be that if you have a strong vision, that it is absolutely possible to raise money in this environment. And there are some advantages to doing that. I mean, for us, we feel like we've been able to hire great talent in this environment because we're seeing that the market has become less competitive in the hiring world. So we've been able to secure some awesome folks to join our team that we're super proud of that might've had even more options come to the table when we were hiring. So I guess my advice really is to, to get out there and try and be confident in your story and your business because no one's business is perfect. But if you have that, that story, that narrative and a really clear vision that you're able to articulate succinctly, you will find someone who's willing to say yes. And it only takes one yes to get a round done. Ross? Yeah, I mean, just just to echo something Jim said, 
these things are cyclical and I'm pretty sure that for, for many months forward, people are going to get the same question I got in the kind of the end stages of my funding round, which is, you know, why, why won't ChatGPT replace your product? And, you know, anecdotally, I know a lot of other founders seeking funds who got the same question and not just in legal tax. So that would be my first bit of advice. You need a really, really thoughtful answer to that question. And they're going to, they're going to probe because they want it. They want to know that you, you have figured out how to turn AI into a benefit and not an albatross. So that's the first thing I'd say. And then the other is there, people will, people will tell you, you know, make sure your pitch deck is, has a flashy story. And I did try to do that. And I think it is necessary, but I think what they don't tell you is that just gets you an email or a call. Once they're interested, everything changes and it's frankly all math. It's all about numbers. It's all about ratios and growth margins and projections. And you have to sort of figure out how to turn all your numbers into a story. But the story, again, can't be thematic or touchy-feely. It has to be a story about money because it's really, really easy to forget that that's, that's what these VC funds are thinking about. They're thinking about total addressable market. They're thinking about pricing. They're thinking about market penetration and not really your, you know, sometimes grandiose or even inspiring plans for your product. Jim, you've done this several times. You know, what, what is your advice? Yeah, I, a couple of things that really, really stand out. Number one is I'll sort of take a different tact. And that is, is, is I think it's really, really valuable to be a subject matter expert in an area with a firm grasp of an unsolved problem that you can state a very clear vision for how you are going to solve that problem. That is incredibly valuable. Everything that Ross and Catherine said beyond that in terms of knowing your numbers, churn, having referenceable customers, all of those things are incredibly valuable. In our case, we have not yet launched the product, so we were able to skip a little bit of the things that Catherine and Ross have gone through, and now we'll go through that in Series A, hopefully. But to me, it's show that you're a subject matter expert, show that there is a real problem, that you know the landscape, and that the status quo is not getting it done, and that you have a vision for how to solve it, and that also you have the passion and the stamina to get in there and 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 really make that dream come true. Catherine, now that you've received funding, what happens next? Get back to work. <laughs> At least for me, I, I mean, our team was absolutely continuing to focus on the business itself while I was spending much of my time fundraising. The biggest shift that we've seen and what I've been really excited about is that you spend all this time pitching to investors and really selling them on the vision and the opportunity and how special your customers are and how special the team is. And then once the deal is signed, now they're on your team and they are helping you and you're no longer selling. You're, you're bringing them into the fold. And at least in our case, we have really helpful investors from Moneta and Live Oak that have supported us for a long time. And now I'm seeing them continue to just invest in helping us. And that's been been really exciting for our team to have, you know, one more resource that has been there, done that to help us take the business to a next level. And it, it's nice to take off the selling cap and instead bring them on as, as true team members. Ross? 
Well, my my advice to myself is I want to I want to ask Catherine and Jim how to navigate this space since they have more experience than than I do. But what I what I would imagine in the you know the whole fourteen days I've had to experience this, what I would imagine is the biggest challenge is you know trying to trying to find the balance between you know getting advice, getting support from investors, but still being true to yourself because. Immediately, once you get funding, all sorts of things do happen. And one of them is you get all of a sudden lots and lots of advice from not just investors, but people, you know, friends of the investors, I don't know, family members of the investors, strangers. And you have to sift through all that, knowing that you, of course, also have to not just have to perform, but want to perform, want to want to fulfill the promises you've made. And and yet somehow keep running the business and and remain to yourself. So I haven't I haven't quite figured out what that balance is, but I but I I can I can see it's a work in progress and and probably quite important to to resolve. Jim Ross, I just want to compliment you. It's an it's an incredibly insightful take on on some of the challenges there, including how do you filter through sometimes conflicting input from so many stakeholders who now are passionate about what you're doing. They want to help you, but you really do have to be able to, to digest the information and, and figure out which pieces are actionable. So it's, I think that's, I think it's really, really insightful. But for me, Ari, we've been building a plane and we've been building a plane for a little while here in the background. And what we just got was fuel. And now, you know, now we've got to go, you know, we've got to go take this plane off and, and fly it. And so the irony is, is that even though I know I'm just being completely candid, even though in some respects, when you close a deal and you announce a deal, you you kind of want to take a take a breath and and maybe even a little bit of a victory lap. The reality is, is that it's just getting started. And for us, you know, we close and, you know, and the next day it's absolutely you know, back into the office and what are we going to do to get folks live and in the system and in production in September? And so that's our next deadline. That's our next goal. So there hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been any moment of, hey, we, you know, let's stop and let's stop and pop the champagne or we did it. Um, This is just absolutely the start. And when you're at a seed stage, I think, again, it's always healthy to take a breath and to compliment yourself, but at a seed stage, you've got fuel, and that's that's all you've got. Now you got to go prove it, right? And so I feel like we have a lot, a lot of work to do, and and that's that's what we're off to. This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Catherine Allen, the CEO of Flow Recruit, Russ Guberman, the CEO of Law Catch, the developer of Brief Catch, and Jim Wagner, the CEO of the Contract Network. All of which have raised a round of funding in August of 2023. Catherine, Ross, Jim, it's been a privilege and I wish you all the very best of luck. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Sorry. Thanks, Ross and Catherine. Thanks, Ari. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ross and Jim. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.